The amazing thing about God is he is so gentle, he is so kind, he's so generous, he is so gracious that he will give us and does give us the power to serve him. He is the one who accomplishes anything that's accomplished through us, and when we get to heaven, he will reward us with his praise and with a greater capacity to serve. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are you truly a worshiper of the God of heaven? Perhaps you are, or perhaps you're not. How can you know for certain, and why is it so important? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part four of He is Worthy. We're in Romans chapter 4 and 5, looking at the vision of heaven as revealed by God to the Apostle John. Today, Tom will continue to examine just how tiny and small your view of God himself can often be if you're not careful. A small view of God fails to reflect his true greatness, majesty, holiness, and awe. He is wholly worthy of your worship and deserving of all praise. But do you think of God the way he describes himself in Revelation? Let's join our teacher now for more on The Word Unleashed. The focus in this word, the Almighty, is not merely on the fact that there is no limit to God's power, although that's true, but rather the focus here is on his unlimited power to rule, his unlimited power to control. Literally, the word means all rule all rule. Nothing happens outside of God's all-powerful rule. Now, there is a lesson Christians need to learn. Whenever you're concerned, whenever you're, you're frustrated by the news, whenever you're thinking, oh, no, the world is, is you know, on a, it's a runaway train and no one's in control, you need to remember this title, the Almighty the one who's characterized by all rule. As God's wrath against this rebellious world begins to reach its climax in, this, in the book of Revelation, this name occurs more and more frequently. We'll see it as this, chapter un, or as this book unfolds. It starts in chapter 11, again in chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 19, chapter 21, again and again this name, the Almighty, shows up to remind us that none of this is out of God's control. It is His perfect rule that is being expressed. God is the Almighty. They also praise God for His self-existence and eternality. Verse 8 goes on to say, who was and who is and who is to come. Again, we've met that title before, but, but here they change the order. These angelic beings change the order we saw back in chapter 1. Notice here it's the one who was. In other words, he continually existed in the past. And I think in light of what we're about to discover, he's saying, or they're saying, including at creation. He was who is, he's simply, he is, he's self-existent, he depends on nothing and no one for his existence, and he is unchangeable. He just always is. He always is what he always has been, and he always will be what he always has been. And he's the one who is to come. As we saw back in chapter 1, 
This refers to the fact that God is going to come and intervene in human history to bring it to its conclusion. These four living beings, this exalted angelic order around the throne of God, they are eager for God to intervene and bring human history to its conclusion, to end the groaning of the creation and bring about its redemption. God is absolutely holy and has unlimited power, and what that means in context is that he has both the power and the right to intervene in human history and return his creation, which is his and his alone, to its state of righteousness, which is exactly what he will do. That brings us to the chief activity before God's throne in verses 9 through 11. We've seen the startling revelation of God's throne in verses 2 and 3, the majestic setting around God's throne, verses 3 to 8. In verses 9 to 10, we see the chief activity before God's throne. The primary activity that surrounds the throne and the person of God is unceasing, perfect worship. In chapters 4 and 5, there are five great hymns of praise. The first two focus on the Father, the next two on the Son, and the final one on both the Father and the Son. And with each hymn, the size of the choir grows. The first begins with a quartet of the four living creatures in chapter 4, verse 8. Then in chapter 4, verse 10, the 24 elders join representing all the redeemed people of God. Then the millions of angels add their voices in chapter 5, verse 11. And finally, in chapter 5, verse 13, every created thing in the universe lifts its voice in praise of God. Praising what about God? Chapter 4 is primarily praising God as creator, as we'll see in a moment. Chapter 5 is primarily praising God as redeemer. So let's see this worship that happens around God's throne. First of all, I want you to notice the worship of the living ones in verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, stop there for a moment. Notice they give God glory and honor. Now, to give God glory and honor is not to give God something he doesn't already have. It is simply to acknowledge the glory and honor, the respect and esteem that he rightly deserves simply by virtue of who he is. And thanks here, they give him thanks, is for all that he provides and does. They give him glory and honor, that is respect and esteem, and they give him thanks. And they give it, notice, to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. These powerful beings surrounding the throne of God acknowledge God's right to rule. He sits on the throne. And they acknowledge his eternality. He lives forever and ever. It'll come up again in verse 10. And this expression, him who lives forever and ever, comes from Daniel 4 and Daniel 12. It's, it's a biblical expression, and they, they exalt God. This is their worship. But then I want you to see the worship of the 24 elders in verses 10 and 11. Notice, go back to verse 9 and, and pick up this in, intervening or introdu, introductory phrase, what I'm trying to say. 
And when, notice that word, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks. So in other words, every time that these angelic beings praise God, so do the 24 elders, all the redeemed people of God. Apparently, these hymns are, are antiphonal as one group responds to another, kind of like we have heard sung, is he worthy, like that. Notice how John describes the worship of the redeemed in heaven. First of all, we will worship in humility and reverence. Verse 10 says, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne. Six times in Revelation, the elders fall down before either the the Father or the Lamb. Six times. Three times, the four living creatures that we've just studied join them. And once, the angels join them as well. Prostrating yourself before someone else, literally, it pictures your own humility and it pictures your reverence and exalted respect for the person before whom you fall. That's the idea here. There is both humility in that I am not worthy, as, as John the Baptist said, to, to loose the sandal from his foot and reverence in the sense of he is exalted beyond anything that I can imagine. He is my creator. He is God Almighty. Their worship is also, our worship is in dependence and submission. Dependence and submission. Verse 10 goes on to say, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever. The leading Greek lexicon defines this word worship this way, to express in attitude or gesture one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority. To express one's complete dependence on or submission to a high authority. That's what's going on here, and that's what we will do. We will also worship in gratitude and honor. Verse 10 says, and they will cast their crowns before the throne. Now, in the rest of the New Testament, you're familiar with this, we learn that believers will receive crowns as their rewards, not literal crowns we put on our heads, but rather, probably, what are the rewards we'll receive? I think if you look at the New Testament, the rewards we'll receive are, are twofold. One, we'll receive the Lord's praise. That's what 1 Corinthians 4 says. When he returns, each man will receive his praise from God. Like in the, in the story Jesus tells, that you are a worthy servant. Welcome home. And secondly, let me just, before I move on to that, just think about that for a moment. Just think about what it will be like to stand before Jesus Christ and hear him say, well done good and faithful servant. And the other part of our reward from everything I see in the New Testament will be a greater capacity to serve in eternity. Our faithfulness here will be rewarded, remember as our Lord says, with more capacity to serve and honor Him forever. So the crowns here are not literal pieces of metal or wreaths we put on our heads. They are simply representative of these great rewards that will be ours. And what will we do with them? We will cast them at the Father's feet. That is to acknowledge that they are undeserved, that they have been received solely as a result of God's grace. Listen, anything God ever will reward you or me for will never be anything that we have done. As Paul says, it was His grace that worked in me to accomplish His purpose. And the same thing is true for all of us. 
So the amazing thing about God is he is so gentle, he is so kind, he's so generous, he is so gracious that he will give us and does give us the power to serve him. He is the one who accomplishes anything that's accomplished through us, and when we get to heaven, he will reward us with his praise and with a greater capacity to serve. And how will we respond? We'll respond by acknowledging that he alone and his grace alone is the only reason for any of that, we will cast our crowns at its feet. And crowns imply ruling, right? We've already seen that believers are going to rule with Christ. And here to throw our crowns at Christ, at the Father's feet is to say that our right to rule with Christ is also grace. It's all of God. So all of that is pictured together. The first time that Handel's Messiah was performed was in London in the year 1743. King George II was present for its debut. And when it got to the end of the Messiah and the Hallelujah Chorus began, King George stood and he bowed his head. It was to show that God alone through his son Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and that earthly kings can only worship them. His gesture reflects the reality of heaven, and by the way, it's the reason that we always stand for the Hallelujah Chorus. We will reflect that attitude in worship around the throne. We will worship God, and we will cast our crowns at His feet, saying, anything good in me has all been from you. It's all grace. And we will worship in adoration and praise. Verse 10, saying, Based on what we discover in Revelation, heaven is filled with a variety of songs. Can I just say, that's why you need as a Christian to learn to sing here. I do not understand a Christian who doesn't sing to the Lord. We are commanded to sing. It fills our hearts to sing. And you better get tuned up because that's what we're going to be doing forever. (laughs) There are a variety of songs that celebrate who God is and what he's done in Christ. And here's the first. It's a song that celebrates God as creator. Because in his creation, we see the evidence of his glory and his power. Notice it starts in verse 11 by declaring the reality that he deserves our praise and adoration. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. It's interesting that the praise of the living ones was about God to others. But the praise of the elders representing the redeemed is directed to God personally. Now look at the word worthy. That is a word that comes from the culture of the first century. In fact, this will shock you, it's actually a political word. The Greek word worthy was used by the citizens of Rome when the emperor marched through the streets in triumphal procession. And ironically, the Roman emperor Domitian, who was in power when this letter was written, was the first emperor to demand that people address him as our Lord and our God while he was still living. The emperor cult Prior to that, it always only acknowledged emperors as gods after their death, but he called for being recognized as Lord and God during his life. John here reminds us that these titles are reserved for the one true and living God alone. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. The 24 elders, the the redeemed people of God in heaven give God glory and honor just like the living ones do. But notice they add power 
And in light of the rest of the verse, I think they are especially celebrating God's power in creation. Notice that he alone is responsible for for the, the reality of creation. For, here's the reason God deserves glory, honor, and power. You created all things. God created all things by his own creative act. And he's responsible for the initiation, the beginning of creation. Notice it was the product of God's will. And because of your will, they existed and were created. God and God alone is the cause of creation. Creation came to be because he willed it and because he did it. Turn back to Psalm 33. I love this description of the creation. Psalm 33, verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's the celebration of heaven toward the Father. The point of this great hymn in Revelation, at the end of Revelation 4, is that God is the Creator. And as the Creator, He has the right to redeem His creation, and He has the right to judge it. So, what are the lessons from this magnificent chapter? It's, it's laying the, the foundation for chapter 5, which, Lord willing, we'll look at next time. But what are the lessons we can learn here? It just struck me this week that this chapter ties so amazingly close to Romans chapter 1. Think about this with me. Here's what we learn from this chapter, and, and it's reflected in Romans 1. First of all, we learn that God's glory is revealed in His creation. God's glory is revealed in His creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Let me ask you a question. Do you ever stop, look up from your phone, and look at what God, our Creator, has made? It's so much more impressive than anything you hold in your hand. Whether you take a telescope the size of the Hubble telescope and you look at the millions of galaxies that can be seen from that telescope, or whether you take an an electron microscope and you look at the smallest creations on this planet, everywhere you look, you see the glory of God. You see His, His character. In fact, according to Revelation 4 and Romans 1, The creation is specifically proclaiming or declaring God's deity or His existence. That's what Paul says in in Romans 1.20. He says, you look at the the things that have been made and you see the invisible things of God, specifically His divine nature. No reasonable, rational person who doesn't have a moral reason for doing otherwise can look at what has been made in this universe and say that happened. That's not an intelligent response. That's a moral response. If you take evolution and say it just happened because the creation's clear. In fact, look at, look at Romans 1. I just want you to see this. Romans 1 verse 19 that which is known about God is evident within them. He's talking now about people who don't have the Bible. He's talking about pagans Gentiles, people outside the people of God, they have an evident revelation of God within them. 
how do we know that? For God made it evident to them. God made it evident. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and here it is, his divine nature have been clearly seen. And not just seen, but understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. There is not a person on this planet who doesn't understand that there is a God from the created world. God doesn't believe in atheists. God doesn't believe in evolutionists either because he has made it evident to every human being. You say, well, how do so many intelligent people on our planet end up believing in evolution? Look back at verse 18. They suppress the truth because they don't like the implications. Creator implies ownership, implies responsibility to obey, and they simply don't want that. God's creation is declaring his his existence. It's declaring his eternality. I mean, think about it. Here we are on this planet. Clearly, there were many generations before us, and there are all of these galaxies out there, and somebody made them and somebody's sustaining them, and that'll continue after we're gone. What does that imply about the person who made them? He's eternal. It also implies his power, God's power. So, God's glory is revealed in his creation, and that's what those angelic beings and the elders around the throne celebrate. God, you are the creator, and everywhere, in everything you've made, you've manifested your glory. Secondly, because of God's glory revealed in creation, God is worthy of worship. He's worthy. I love that. He deserves it. He deserves your worship. He deserves the worship of every intelligent being in the universe. In fact, in Romans 1.20, if you're, if you're still there or can flip back there again, you'll see it says, being understood, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. God is worthy of worship. He deserves to be glorified, and they didn't. That's what give Him honor means. It means to glorify God. They didn't glorify God. Number three, God's worthiness for worship demands man's worship. It demands man's worship. Because God is worthy of worship, because He's created all things, every human being should be worshiping God, His Creator, the one who made Him or her, the one who sustains us, who gives us life. This is what should be happening, and it doesn't happen. Men suppress the truth about God. They refuse to give Him glory. They refuse to give Him thanks. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. Let me tell you, Unbelievers will gather with their family, and they will talk with each other about what they're grateful to have, but what they will not do is actively take time to say thank you to God who gave them all those things. Man should worship, but he doesn't, and that leads us to where this chapter is headed. Man's refusal to give God glory or thanks deserves and will bring God's wrath. That's what this chapter is reminding us of. It's building Remember, it's building. This is a scene in heaven just before the great tribulation begins and before Christ comes and takes the, the, the scroll with seven seals, the title deed to the earth, and begins to break its seals and unleash His judgment on this planet. Before all of that happens, those beings around the throne, the redeemed as well as these these living ones, and, and all of the angels joined together in saying, God, you created all things. You deserve to be worshiped. And yet look, look at what man has become. And therefore, God will unleash his wrath. 
Let me just make this very personal. You, you were made to worship. You were created by God. He has given you life. He's given you every good thing you have. He sustains your life. So my question to you is, are you truly a worshiper of the God of heaven? If not, your refusal or failure to worship him is accumulating God's just anger against you. And someday, like the world at large, you will experience that outpouring of God's anger. God is incredibly patient, but the day is coming when God will have had enough of rebellion and he will begin to act. That's the lesson that we see beginning here in chapter four. May all of us seek mercy in the sun. I love the way Psalm two ends. Kiss the sun, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who find refuge in him. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of He is Worthy. Join us again next time for part five. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.